Welcome back to Groundwork, brought to you by Lingo Live. I'm Tyler Muse. At Groundwork, we talk to chief people officers from the world's fastest growing companies. We get to know them on a human level and explore how they became the leaders they are today, how they've navigated their toughest challenges, and how they envision the future of work. Today, we're featuring my conversation with Barb Biden. Great HR solutions need to understand that they're there to fuel and empower the business where the clients that you're serving don't feel like the HR work that they're doing and partnering with your team on are detracting from their ability to deliver the work that they have to do, but that it's actually fueling and making and amplifying and accelerating their ability to do the work. Barb started out in sales and spent almost a decade in the fitness space prior to making her mark at some of the best known technology companies in the world. She led talent acquisition for BlackBerry and Yahoo and later became the chief people officer at Envision, one of the early pioneers of remote work. On the first day of lockdowns in the US, she became the SVP of global talent at Peloton and led the company's transition to remote work through unprecedented growth during the pandemic. Barb now finds herself as the chief people officer at Boom Supersonic, the unicorn that's breaking barriers for its ambition to build the world's fastest airliner. In this episode, Barb talks about the infrastructure she and her team are building to prepare for scale. We'll hear which priorities are top of mind how to keep the organization engaged in a virtual environment, and the story of a decisive meeting with her executive team that ended with a sigh of relief. Barb, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I'm super excited to chat with you. I am super excited to be here, Tyler. So thank you for having me. Well, so before we got started here, you shared a little bit about what's going on in your present day now leading the people function at Boom Supersonic. And I thought this was so interesting because a lot of folks like you that have been in these hyper growth environments, they they jump right into the deep end. There's a ton of fires to put out. The company's growing like crazy. And they bring that skill set to kind of dive in as quickly as they can and, and solve as many problems as they can while also laying the infrastructure for the scale. You're in a unique situation with, with Boom Supersonic. There's a lot of press. There's a lot of excitement about what y'all are doing. But you mentioned how you've got a little bit of a calm before the storm of the hypergrowth that you're anticipating. Can you share a little bit more about that? I, I would say we're still in a, in a high growth phase, but maybe I have a certain mental threshold for, for when that crosses over into hypergrowth for me. And so what I'm experiencing here that I haven't experienced elsewhere, because you're right, normally you have the, the foundation setting, the infrastructure building, and you've got to be flying the plane at the same time and getting all of the operational things done, like growing and hiring and onboarding people while you're still building and setting the foundation. And we don't have... Um, 
the ramp for hiring at quite the the steepest level that we will in the future uh, because right now we're we're wrapping up our prototype aircraft which is a, a single aircraft that is being built by a, a single team and uh we are starting the design and engineering process on our commercial aircraft, um, but we don't, because that's not in manufacturing mm-hmm. yet, we d- haven't been climbing that steep growth curve. So it's it's been pretty interesting because I am finding, and this is all relative, but uh, that I'm getting a little bit more breathing room than I have maybe in a traditional tech company or in software where things are faster to market. And the, the time has been there to... Uh, really set the right infrastructure and maybe bake it a little Mm -hmm. bit more than you have the opportunity to do in some of the other organizations that I've I've worked in. So it's it's unique and it's been different. Yeah. And can you give us a sense for kind of that, the numbers you talked about, your threshold for hyper growth. So you've, you've been at Boom just almost coming up on a year and you mentioned y'all are at 200 employees now. So where were you at from an employee headcount standpoint when you joined? It'll be a matter of whether I can do the backwards math. A number that is sticking in my head because I just shared it with the team yesterday is that we had uh, 37% year-over-year headcount growth last year. And so to put that in perspective relative to, you know, I don't know exactly where my threshold is mentally for hyper growth, but other companies have, you know, been in the the realm of 100% right. year-over-year growth. And we're going to hit that here soon at Boom, but, but 37% feels more than more than what you would experience in a mature company for right. sure but it it feels so manageable to me in some odd way because i'm i'm used to the 100% year over year right. growth or or 65% year over year right. growth but 37 is where we were at and our headcounts around the 200 mark right now this is such a unique situation because you know what's coming but you have that like you said the calm before the storm to kind of prepare for it. So so what are you doing to prepare for it? What's some of that kind of foundation that you're putting in place now in anticipation of that growth? What I am observing that's similar to what I felt in other software companies is that in the earliest days of a company, and Boom's been around a little over six years at this point, but in the earliest days of the company, you're being uh, scrappy, right? You're trying to do a lot with a little, and you know you're you're okay with solutions that you know you'll iterate on later. And that's really what I encountered when I joined Boom about a year ago, and understandably so. And what we're doing now is we've kind of crossed this threshold where. Um, we're moving and we're still obviously being very responsible and you know how we use our investors money cuz we're a little while away from from revenue but we are investing more and now we're building the real infrastructure so we're doing things like i mean right now we're doing actually a lot of things all at once it feels like with the start of the year but we've launched a proper annual performance program, for example, that we launched in December and we're kicking off again for this year in terms of providing performance feedback. We're trying to launch some framework for building a culture of ongoing feedback where feedback is you know, not an event, but a, a thing that we all give and receive regularly. We're about to hit a comp planning cycle um, right now, next week, actually, and kicking that off for like an annual um, comp planning cycle, but we didn't have yet all of the appropriate compensation infrastructure to do that properly. So we're 
laying that foundation and then running a cycle, for example. Those are a couple of the things, but we've got a whole, you know, a whole roadmap, right? So if you think about the various areas of HR, we have projects that fall under literally every area. And typically, I would describe the projects that we have in the next year as the first one to two major things in each area of HR, be it talent attraction or talent management or diversity, equity, and belonging. The first few foundational programs or projects that really start to build out that sub-function of HR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's so uh, cool to hear you talk about that because you know, we work with hyper growth companies and oftentimes they come to us years after the point that you're at, because to your point, I think they've been so focused on recruiting and onboarding hundreds of people that things like performance management and feedback or fair and equitable compensation, these are things that they just haven't had the luxury, I guess, of being able to really think sophisticatedly about and put some structure in place because to your point, they were also flying the plane uh, at, at the same time. So that makes a ton of sense. What do you feel like is the biggest advantage you have at Boom uh, right now? Like the wind that's at your sales that you feel like is really propelling your growth as a company and your ability to be successful as a, as a people leader there? Well, I think it ties back to what you were just describing, right? Because I've been that leader in the 5,000-person company that grew so fast that you didn't have time to build all of the stuff that I'm building now at 200 people. Like I've been there and I know how hard it is when you have a a business that's running and an employee base of 5,000 and you've got to go do all this stuff that I'm doing now. And so the for for me personally as an HR leader and my team, the the wind at my back is that we have the very great privilege and and fortune to be able to do the things that I've done before at 5,000 people can do it now and do it well. We 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 joke about this that, you know, having several of the leaders on my team have also been worked in much larger companies, public companies and so forth and you know, where a spreadsheet that you might be looking at for compensation planning or something like that has like 25,000 rows <sighs> of data, right, in it. And so we joke that you can like brute force anything at 200 rows of mm-hmm. data and that that feels like a gift, right? Like I realize that's a gift that a lot of hyper growth leaders don't have and that I just haven't had in the past. Like you can't brute force through something very easily when you have 25,000 rows of data. And if you have to kind of plow your way through something, you can do it, right? Like when a leader on my team will often say, you know, I can do anything with 200 rows of data in a Saturday afternoon if I have to. And and it's true, right? So there's some some fortune in that. And I want to make sure we don't I want to make sure we don't squander that and we take advantage of um, that opportunity to lay a really, really great foundation here. Maybe a foundation that I would have like wished to be able to lay in other companies, but because of time and bandwidth and, and the fact that there's already 5,000 people in the company, I maybe haven't been able to do all of those great things in as great a way as I might have wanted mm-hmm. to. And I feel like, I feel like we're going to get to do that here. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, we've got 
chief people officers that are at hyper growth companies that listen to the podcast. Like when you think about that performance and management piece or feedback piece or, or compensation, any advice in terms of tools or partners or just things that you've tried here that is working really well for y'all that, that you could share? I think with, and maybe philosophically, let me give an an answer that's a little bit more philosophical around tools because I think hyper growth has um, shifted my view on this over the past um, five years Mm. or so. There are so many great, and I use the term endpoint solutions. And by that, I just mean, you know, a, a tool like Culture Amp for performance, for example, or Greenhouse as an applicant tracking system, right? So a tool that does kind of one thing in the HR tech stack really, really well. And I used to earlier in my career be much more a sort of end to end, right? Like, let's just get everything integrated all in the same system. And I I think my advice to anyone maybe thinking about like the need to do it end to end is to really reframe and think about whether you you actually can with the way APIs work, choose the very, very best endpoint solution that's going to deliver the best consumer-esque experience to your end users, be it hiring managers, leaders in your organization, team members, whatever, and choose the right tool for that thing. And don't worry about trying to choose a single tool for all Mm -hmm. of the things, which just is, so it's just a place where my thinking has evolved because I really, and, and I think the tool that is the best for each thing is going to vary depending on the team, I'm much more contextual. I think um, there are lots of great tools out there and choosing the right, it's like choosing the right hammer to hammer in the particular nail that you've got to to nail in this case is important. And that tool might change company to company. Versus in the past, you might say, well, just try and find one hammer and hope that it, you know, nails all these different nails. You're saying, no, find the best hammer for each of those nails. You might have you know, a lot of different tools in place, but you've learned that that's actually a better way to proceed than trying to centralize. Right. Like we, we, I used to, we used to tolerate less than great. You know, we'd choose a tool because it had the best applicant tracking system because we were in high growth mode. And turns out that maybe it's not Go, it's not going to work well with your HR system or the talent management module that that sits with that tool. Like if you think about some of the really big enterprise solutions, right, from like the big software, like SAP, Oracle, et cetera, you, you end up delivering substandard solutions in certain areas because you felt compelled to choose a tool because it was great in other areas. And I just don't think you have to do that yeah. anymore. And I, 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 I stick on this point because I actually like for my own learning, I actually think I, I held on to my belief about like end to end single mm. solutions longer than I should have. And I, it's like, I, maybe I feel like I'm uh, like the, the a veil has lifted and <laughs> I wish that veil would have lifted sooner. So that's where it maybe ends up being, um, pertinent advice to other leaders working in similar situations. Yeah, no, that's great. And I got to be honest, Barb, it seems like the situation you're in is pretty ideal. This whole calm before the storm, you've got the resources you need to kind of lay the foundation, but you don't have this pressure of kind of flying the plane at the same time that you're building it. Uh, I'm curious, are there any downsides having been in that environment where you do have to kind of do both at the same time? Do you, do you see any downsides of things that you think that there actually are advantages to having that pressure of having to keep growing headcount while you're laying the foundation 
Or do you feel like, no, this is actually the ideal situation to be in? No, I think there's, I think there is, um, downside, not the least of which is I, I think as my team listens to this, there because there there are there's sufficient pressure, right, on on certain other things. And then I'll, I can talk about that a little bit, but they'll probably kill me for for the calm before the storm <laughs> description because it's not actually calm and and they're gonna probably hear this and ask me if I've lost my mind. But but it's it's differently it is calmer than other other circumstances. So something I'm learning is I think when you're in that hyper, like the other type of hyper growth, not what I'm experiencing at Boom, you are, you need to be so fast to deliver solutions that everyone, including myself, right, gets, I may have a super high quality bar, right? Like I want like the world's best solutions out there, but in a hyper growth situation, you have to not let perfect be the enemy of of good. And so you kind of, you don't lower your quality bar, but you get more okay with like, let's put something out there and let's iterate. Mm -hmm. And here we, we have a little bit more opportunity to maybe take good to great, still not perfect, still don't let perfect be the enemy of great, but let's get to great versus Mm -hmm. good because we can take another beat to get there. And that's been a shift for me because I, I have been sort of serially working in companies where we didn't have that time or that luxury. So the downside I think is what I'm, what I'm saying there is like, don't, I have to be careful to not go too far in the direction of going, Ooh, this is cool. We get to, we get to do great here instead of just good. Right. And, and not to get greedy and go, well, let's now do Mm -hmm. perfect because we can Mm -hmm. do great. And, and and because we, we don't, we still don't have time for perfect and perfect is never perfect anyway. By the time you roll it out, it's no longer perfect. So you, you, you still need to be able to have, an iterative approach to how you improve programs over time and all of those sure. things. But so for me, it's like, I, I saw this other way of like, oh, I can get to great. And how do I not, how do I not get greedy about that and, and demand perfection? I think that would be the cautionary tale that I'm, I'm mentally telling myself here. Yeah. Um, I can see that being a hard balance to strike, right? You still have to be nimble and iterative. So don't let that kind of luxury of maybe more time, more breathing room, help you fall into a trap of kind of perfection uh, that makes it yeah like you'll always find yeah you'll always find things you can make better and that's kind of the point right like if you have a learning organization and you want to have approaches that sort of follow a continuous improvement mindset there should always be things that you find that you can make better and so don't confuse yourself into thinking that you should uh find all of the things before you take action, right? Because you can get into a, a paralysis situation and start moving too slow. So it's sort of, you know, you got to avoid both poles, right? Like don't go so fast right. in a hyper growth situation that you're rolling things out that are like not even partially baked or, and they're confusing and they're not going to land well with your team, but also don't go so far the other direction that you strive for perfection that you actually like don't roll anything out ever. And then people are struggling because they don't have the stuff they need to, to do their jobs or they don't have the right HR support from your team to be really successful as employees within your business. I'm curious, just to close out this point of kind of what you're focusing on, when I asked you kind of what is that calm before the storm look like? What is that foundation you're trying to lay? The, The first three things you mentioned were performance management, giving feedback, and uh, 
compensation strategy. I'm curious, like why, why are those three things so important at this stage as you're anticipating that type of growth? Since you're asking this question, I probably should have not forgotten engagement survey because that was one mm-hmm. of the other foundational items that we actually just finished because I'd include that in that group. And in, so now that I've added to my list, engagement survey, I think is important because the more quickly you can establish a baseline of data around how your employee experience is landing with your team members Um the better, right? Because then you know how you're doing and you know how all of the rest of the things that you do after are either toggling that engagement level in an upward or downward direction, right? So you can like measure the impacts of your your work. The other things I I think about as one-way doors versus um, two-way mm. doors. So uh, to me, I want to, things that are, you want to kind of set something and not change too much around over the short term anyway, are the things that you want to want to lay first. And that's where I think compensation fits in for me, right? Like that does not get any, (laughs) that does not get any better to Mm -hmm. fix 5,000 people. It's a hundred times worse um, and harder because, you know, you've got all of your legacy team members that you've got to figure out how to fit into a structure that's new and that sort of thing. So to me, and one-way doors, I'm sort of talking like a funhouse door, right? Like once you're out the door, like there's no handle to go back. And so things that are one-way doors I are, are like things you want to kind of focus and spend some time on first. So I'm using the calm before the storm to spend the time and mental energy on getting the one-way doors right. Where when I say two-way doors, it's like the the kitchen door in a restaurant, right? Like if you if you forgot something back in the kitchen, you can turn around and the door swings mm-hmm. either way. You can get back in there very quickly. And and those things are probably the second order items that that I'd be inclined to get to once we uh, set the foundational items. And so con- that's such a great point that one-way door versus two-way door you gotta when you have the time to make these decisions that are basically irreversible which is this kind of one-way door metaphor you've got to make sure you get it right so take advantage of the time that you have to get that right and you're saying comp is definitely one of those would you say performance management and feedback are also a one-way door See, and I was trying to think of why I I think we're doing that for a different reason. And I think it's communication in communication, which feedback is a form of communication in, in my mind, is super critical in a high growth company and in startups in particular, because we tend to be moving so fast that sometimes we're not the greatest at communication. So uh, setting some foundation that assures you that leaders and their team members are going to have regular opportunities for feedback and everyone's going to under. So when I think of our performance program, the, the high level things that I'm striving to achieve there are really that we are making sure that every team member understands how they are contributing to this success of boom over the year, right? The performance year that we're in and that they feel really tied in to those, those goals and they know how they're going to contribute. And then are they aligned on that with their manager? Are they speaking regularly with their manager about how they're doing? Philosophically, I believe that team members should at all times understand how they are doing in their manager's eyes, how they're performing in their manager's eyes. And so structuring things in a way where we're like really opening up those performance lines of communication, uh, because sometimes we're just like running around so fast that we don't take the time to, to 
communicate with one another as we should. So I'm like trying to build that muscle early. So I'm only trying to call that out because this may be a little, it doesn't probably fit with my like one-way door or two-way door situation. To me, that's more about a foundational piece of communication that's like absolutely critical to have in business. Well, there's very there's uh, very clearly a uh, focus on operations and setting the foundation and the system. And I, I know you started your career in the fitness industry as an operator, and you've pointed out how you know obviously you've excelled in the field of HR, but you said that you remain grounded in your foundation as an operator. I'm curious if you could uh, elaborate on that. What did you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I think I can relate to the role of a leader and what they're trying to do to deliver whatever it is that they are responsible for delivering within a business. And I know that from a vantage point that isn't just as an HR leader trying to deliver HR things to the business. I, When I started my career in fitness, I started in the sales and operations side of things. So I was delivering revenue to, to the business for bricks and mortar facilities. And then I was a GM, right? So then I'm delivering not, not, I was never personally an instructor, but I had teams, right, where we were delivering like personal training services. And so I can empathize with the real work that people outside of HR are trying to get done at work and understand how great HR solutions need to understand that they're there to fuel and empower the business. And they need to feel as helpful as possible with as light touch um, as possible. And by light touch, I just mean where the clients that you're serving don't feel like the HR work that they're doing and partnering with your team on are detracting from their ability to deliver the work that they have Mm -hmm. to do, but that it's actually fueling and making and amplifying and accelerating their ability to do the work that they are meant to do. And so I just, I, I like, I know what it's like to have to deliver, I guess. And, and I don't want my team, um, to be ever interacting with our clients, like the, out in the business in a way that feels like an impediment. Like that's not what we're there for. And there are tons of HR leaders who think that way. I don't think you need an operational foundation to, to, to do that. But for me, that's what it means, right? Mm. Is that I can, I can truly say to leaders, I, I I get it. Like I've, I've been in your shoes and, and we need to keep this easy and manageable for you to interact with, right? Like say a performance process, right? What does that look like so that it doesn't take, you know, 50% of leaders productive time for 30 days to like get through this process? Mm -hmm. Because all the while they're doing that, they're not doing the actual work that they are meant to be there to do. Mm-hmm. So how do we make it important and and make it a functional performance management process without being so overwrought that it detracts from like the the, the business of your business? Right. I love how you're talking about performance management because oftentimes when you hear people, not, not even just HR leaders, but I think also managers, we, we work with a lot of managers and they think about performance management is really about one-on-ones and giving feedback and kind of holding people accountable to their roles and the responsibilities in their role, but also coaching and developing them. And that stuff's all really important. But the point you're making is that ultimately it has to connect to the business and what the business is trying to accomplish, not just from your specific domains, you know, perspective, but from a holistic perspective and that you're bringing that 
into everything that you and your team are doing is in service of what are the strategic priorities of the business? Where are we going? How do we serve that? And it's interesting to hear how that connects back to, you know, that original first career experience you had in the sales and operations capacity in the fitness industry. I just had this conversation with a leader at Boom yesterday. We were finishing a conversation about performance management and engagement survey. And I think from this individual's prior experience, they were actually expecting me to have like a laundry list of, you know, 25 actions from the survey. And and I went in with a plan. We were going to have one action from the survey, one company-wide action that we knew was an actual engagement driver that was a thing that highly engaged people in our team rated well and disengaged people in our team rated poorly. So it's going to be, if you can move that thing, it's going to drive engagement. And so I presented one thing and it's like I heard an audible like sigh of (laughs) relief from my peers in the executive team because they're so used to situations where it's like, let's do these 25 things. And then suddenly the business of your business is like doing these 25 improvement actions yeah. relative to your survey. And I'm like, let's pick one and do it well. And then we we got off the call and I shot him a note and I said the the one the one engagement survey action was for you, my friend. I know I know you do not have time <sighs> to both fly a plane and and get 25 additional actions. So let's choose the right one and like knock it out of the park. Absolutely. And that's it makes sense connecting back to what you said about you know, this idea of perfect is the enemy of of the good. I, I use that quote all the time, but I think it can be a slippery slope because sometimes that could mean, well, we can do rather than doing one thing great, not perfect, but great, we could do 10 or 25 things good enough, right? And the point you're making is like, no, there's a middle ground between good and perfect, which is great. And let's focus on great. And I'd rather be really great at this one thing that's going to move the needle the most for the business, not just for, you know, the people space, than, you know, do a a good enough job across these 25 other things. So uh, I definitely empathize and I'm learning from what you're saying, because I, I tend to lean more towards the scrappy, good enough, let's just get through these things. And I need to lean more into like, we'll just pick that one or two things that we've got to be great at and focus on that. Well, and, and for the most part, this isn't this isn't the last time we're ever going to get to do this thing right, right? that's a, that's another thing i said when when i thought in that same conversation where we might have been going down a path where we were going to take on too much and i said let's not forget that this survey is going to run again in a pulse fashion halfway through the year and then a full survey 6 months later we're going to need actions then too right like let's Remember that. Remember, we do not need Mm. to pull everything in now and do it now. If we can do something meaningfully well right now, and then and then do the second thing the next time, and it's like how do how do you eat an elephant, right, one bite at a time? And it's that that argument as well. Switching gears a little bit, but it's it's very hard to do. Or all this, what we've been talking about, becomes more complicated in a remote world and you everybody now lives in remote right in some form or another but you are unique in that you actually were at arguably the leader of remote work at envision prior to the pandemic and and the one of the organizations i could count on one hand that have really kind of blazed that trail of like this is what remote work looks like and i know that you then brought that expertise to peloton afterwards so I'm curious, like, what do you think Envision did well 
when it came to remote work? And, and what did you try to replicate at Peloton? Envision's culture was still, I would still describe as one of the strong, strongest or stronger cultures that I've experienced. We effectively embedded the principles in everything we do. And I say everything somewhat aspirationally, right? Because it's obviously, a, it's, a, it's a path that you have to walk down. It doesn't happen immediately, right? But if you truly can get your principles or your values to a place where they're the, there's something you can evaluate yourself against, like, should I or should I not do this thing? Should I or should I not roll out this program in this way? Is this program true to our principles or our values? We did a good job, I think, of embedding that, right? So we the principles were in our performance culture. We had and and it was kind of we we were a little back and forth on the the cheesiness factor, but I actually love that we did this in a virtual setting. We um, sent everybody principles cards, which is a little low tech, but it it, it was so sticky. And so mm. it was basically like business card size um cards that we sent out to all of our team members. And because everyone's on video all the time, you could like flash a card if someone was like expressing an idea or doing something that displayed the principles. And so mm -hmm. we tried it and it was sort of, we were like, I wonder what they're going to think of this, right? Like, will people use it? Or are they going to think it's cheesy? People latched onto it. And for that particular thing was, I would describe was the thing that started to make the principles stick. Hmm. And then you start to see the principles being used in people's common language, right? So they're describing things in terms of the principles. There, people created emojis on Slack that were indicative of like one that represented each of the principles and they would like react to people's like Slack posts and messages with the principles. So they were like hmm. everywhere. And so to me, that is something that builds like it, it, you if you want to have a culture at all in a virtual environment, you you have to, I think, do work like I'm describing we did at Envision. But that same sort of work I've now experienced works, whether virtual, not virtual, doesn't matter, right? It, it's mm. a, a great way to embed culture. So culture, I think, was super strong. We also, you know, we we got really good at the the foundational elements, right? Like our systems worked well. We helped people to be really tech savvy so they could navigate like using technology literally all of the time. And then we did some non-virtual stuff. I, I We brought the team together for um, in real life at least once a year. It mm. was actually a conference called IRL in real life. And to me, that conference creates created like intentional collision points between people who might not otherwise ever meet face to face. Right. And so then you have that conference and it supercharges the relationship between individuals in the company so that when you go back home and you're not going to see people again for a while, those relationships have been supercharged in a way that makes remote work work in my opinion. Right. So I don't think great remote work is ever like 100% remote. I'm, I'm not quite to that point yet, but I, I am obviously a, a remote work fan. And I, I actually went to Envision because all we were doing was relocating people um, from place to place in prior companies. And, and rightfully so, like I'm not knocking the practice of doing it, but I, I was seeing like the biggest players out there, right? Like the Amazons, Facebook, Google really be focused on also wanting people to relocate to the center of their universe. And I was thinking like at some point, 
they're not going to be able to figure out how to do it. And, and I really want to figure out how to, how to make remote work, work at scale. And Envision was the place to do it at scale at that time, pre-COVID. And then right. just very randomly and coincidentally, my, my leaving Envision to go to Peloton was very literally on the first day of the pandemic, which oh, wow. none, none of it was planned. I actually had a long um, lead time um, to, to, I had actually accepted the offer at Peloton before the pandemic started, but mm. my planned um, start date was actually the Friday, the 13th of March. Oh, I remember the that infamous day. day when everyone got sent home. Yeah. Yep. We had a board meeting that day. Okay. Yeah. So that wasn't part of the kind of justification, justification is the wrong word, but part of the re the scope of your work was like, Barb, teach us how to go remote. That was kind of something you had to figure out that once you got to Peloton, because it was an unexpected development. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of, um, Peloton was just figuring it out right as I was landing. And I had just, I was like the, the person who had just come from a completely virtual world. So I think there were places where that expertise was certainly helpful and, and people asked lots of questions and appreciated like any insights and things that I was able to share. But I mean, having it, it wasn't planned that way right. but having it ended up being particularly relevant during that pandemic year at Peloton. And did you try to replicate some of the same stuff that you talked about in a vision of kind of grounding people in the principles or was it actually a different set of challenges that you had to focus on vis-a-vis -vis remote work? I, I can take zero credit at all for Peloton having really strong and and very embedded values prior to me ever getting there. I think the the founders and the leadership team did an awesome job of that. Like people people really were hanging on to the values and and really feeling them and and acting them before I before I got there. So I think that that was already strong. I do think some of the things that we latched onto is like engagement, like how, and, and I actually mean very little literal engagement, like an in, in interaction, like um, trying to be as thoughtful as possible about social events and keeping teams that are used to interacting face to face in person, keeping them interacting during the pandemic. And so the, it's like, I already knew <laughs> coming in, you know, it took everyone like nine months through the pandemic to, to get to the place where they're like, Oh, not another zoom happy hour. Mm -hmm. I already knew that zoom happy hours were like, not good. Right. Like people, they're like, awkward. Like I, I had the, the, they're small things, but like the best things I had in my bag of tricks were like, let's not just do a bunch of zoom happy hours. Let's do some really cool things. And I, I would personally take no credit for where we landed. We had a really creative team who came up with cool things, but we did like, you know, virtual family feud and all kinds of events that required physical things. I've done like, we've done paint and sip virtual, like things that actually weren't made worse because they were virtual. Like a happy hour is worse yeah. when it is virtual, period. Like you won't convince me otherwise, right. but there are things you can do together and interactively with your peers and colleagues that are actually not necessarily worse by definition because you're doing them virtually and like find those things and do them. Sounds like a small thing, but like that, keep in mind Peloton, uh, I was there during literally the height of the pandemic, like the worst year of it. Right. And it, it that's what pe people needed that. Right. Well, during and that were time, right. It was a really important thing. Famously growing too, right. There's a ton of people ordering Peloton machines uh, stuck at home. So it was also a time of hyper growth for the company, right? 
I mean, I had my Peloton before I joined. So that actually is the only thing that really got me um, perked my ears up from Envision because I, I did love, like really loved the executive team and the the team that I was working with at Envision. But I was like a total Peloton fan and had been for a while before. But yeah, it was it was hyper I mean, everyone knows the the story, right, of the the growth that Peloton experienced in that year and had just gone public, you know, nine-ish months, something like that, prior to really hitting pandemic times. And then everybody needed a Peloton. It was the joke. The joke was, you know, you'd be talking to a vendor or any like um, candidate you're speaking to and you're on a Zoom call. And it was like a prop in the background, like everybody's Zooms, like their their video setup was like in front of their Peloton. And there were times when I'm like, is that is that for real? Or like, did they move their camera so that their Peloton would be in the background? But it wasn't like it was like everyone had like their work right. set up and then a way to work out at home. And that was their Peloton sitting behind them. So right. I couldn't have asked for a cooler, a cooler time to spend there. Well, and it's a, it's really cool to hear that, you know, in a time like that, when revenues growing like crazy, customers are coming in the door, that's oftentimes when pe- you hear about burnout, people burning out because you're trying to do so much more with so much less than what you were resourced for. And the fact that you focused on events, ways to bring people together and have fun and enjoy themselves, I'm sure was, was super critical to helping folks kind of manage that, not only focus on this staggering growth that we now need to kind of figure out how to accomplish. Yeah, I think so. And and there was such excitement, right, about the enthusiasm and excitement around that, the Peloton brand during that time that um, I think there is something to be said. And we see this at Boom too, and I've seen it in other companies where, you know, when folks are so excited about what it is your company is trying to deliver to the world that for um short periods of time for for sprints not marathons you know that that energy that you get from being so tied to the mission is something that does help offset feelings of burnout for a period of time and i i do think we were in that zone at, at peloton right like more so than burnout connections were still important between people but you know people were jazzed right about what the brand was doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great perspective for folks out there that are at these hyper growth companies is, you know, find ways to, to bring people together in a remote setting and, and do things that don't suck more in a virtual format, but then also like lean into the excitement of that rocket ship and the ride and the mission and the fact that like we're hitting right now on all cylinders. And this is like what you try to do and most companies fail to do it. And so you know, it's an exciting time. It sounds like it's a a delicate balance between kind of celebrating the excitement of the mission and the growth and all these exciting things that are happening while at the same time making sure we're not burning out here, you know, just hoping that folks can just ride this euphoria of excitement and then end up working, you know, 100 hours a week and and they're, they're toast. Well, and we know that now too, right? Like even just the pandemic in general, right? That like 2020, was like the time when we literally were all like literally all locked in our homes, right? And so hindsight being 2020, I think that's no pun intended there, but like that particular <laughs> I was also going to say you talk about flying the plane when you were, we were talking about boom super I know. Sun. I, I, I didn't, oh my, I didn't like call the, it out. The plane we we throw pl- plane and transportation analogies <laughs> all over the place at boom. You are someone that truly has experience at groundbreaking companies shaping the way that we work. And so 
I'm curious to ask you, like, what excites you about where we're heading with work and what work means in the future? I am excited about what virtual work and the fact that every company is going to at least be open to it in some capacity. If they aren't already, the talent shortages are going to force them, I think, in that direction. And I'm excited about what that can do for unlocking opportunities for talent in, well, we're both in Dallas and love Dallas, love Texas. But when we talk about like large global technology companies, there aren't like a ton. There aren't actually there's significantly less than a ton of them here in (laughs) Dallas. And what are the opportunities that would be unlocked for someone in who lives in Dallas, like I do, and doesn't maybe want to relocate to the Bay Area? What are the companies that are now open to hiring someone in Dallas that weren't ever like those opportunity sets were, were not available? So you think about then unlocking that talent. And there are, have got to be amazing people in in amazing places in the U.S. and abroad who just have never had the opportunity to access a role in, say, the Bay Area if they were never going to move there. And when when the when great companies find that talent, it's like this gigantic group of untapped folks who whose ideas maybe were not being brought to bear in the biggest ways possible because Mm -hmm. they live in a small town in a small market and there are no large companies there. But like, there's just like, we're going to be able to put so many more human beings ideas into the mix, then that layers on to how that can impact things like diversity, equity and belonging. If we open up opportunities in to folks that are in markets um, where more racial, ethnic, cultural diversity than than there might be in certain other cities in the U.S. and, And that talent comes to bear. What can we move the needle on with respect to representation in our workplaces? So, I mean, to me, that's like the the mental chain of events that I start going down if you want to yeah. like think about what really makes me excited about where I think work is headed. Absolutely. And just think about kind of what type of innovation that unlocks too. It's not just, oh, there's great talent in these markets. There's great talent that thinks about things differently than in the markets that we're used to hiring in and brings unique perspectives and problem solving capabilities. And so what type of companies get built? in that type of environment. I'm with you 100%. This is uh Yeah, if the top 10 tech companies, right, or, or the top 10 tech cities, right, were kind of where most of the ideas were coming from, if we've just now blown that out of the water, like we have exponentially increased the idea pool, right, and the perspective pool that we can bring to bear against any business problem or problem in the world because people have figured out that it's actually possible to work differently. And we have no idea what things that can bring to bear in the world yet. And I'm I'm anxiously awaiting being able to start to see those things in real and tangible ways. Like I think we actually can't even imagine what that might bring yet in all the most positive ways. Absolutely. Barb, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. There's a lot of great uh, advice, good food for thought, and then also kind of interesting aspirations for the future of how we work that you've you've brought to the show today. So thank you so much for being here. This has been one of the most enjoyable topics to chat about in, in the last um, 
little while. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I had fun. That was Barb Biden. You know, I love the point that Barb made about the calm before the storm. I'd never really heard anybody be in that situation before where you actually have the foresight to know what's coming in terms of the growth that you're expecting, but be in a place where there is calm, where you're not growing quite at that rate and you can actually put infrastructure in place and start to think proactively and strategically about kind of what is it that you need to do to make sure that this company doesn't fall apart when we start scaling really fast because we put the things in place that we needed to from a people standpoint to accommodate that growth. You can find us online at groundwork.show. I'm Tyler Muse. Groundwork is produced by Mike Giordani at Flowship. Audio engineering by Alex Roses. Production assistant by Casey Miller. Music by Aaron Sprinkle, Adrian Walther, and Coralina Combo. Special thanks to Pedro Matriciano and Natalia Krimgold. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>